Welcome to the Modern Mobility Podcast, brought to you by Modern Mobility Partners. This podcast is for transportation planners and enthusiasts who want to learn practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges. And now, here are your co-hosts, certified transportation planners, national experts, and thought leaders, Kelly Kemp and Kirsten Moat. Well, welcome to Episode 8 of the Modern Mobility Podcast. I am Kelly Kemp. And I'm Kirsten Moat. And we are your fabulous co-hosts today. So today we have a special guest, Ryan Sager, also with Modern Mobility Partners. Ryan, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So today's episode is very timely. We're going to go through 10 steps to completing a USDOT grant application. And the reason why it's so timely is that very soon, um, some of which in the next few days, we're recording this in late January of 2022. And in the next few days, there's going to be a new notice of funding opportunity from the feds for the RAISE grant, um, which is updated from the new uh, Infrastructure and Investment Jobs Act, or IIJA, the new infrastructure bill that was signed into law. And so there's a lot of new funding opportunities that came with that that we're very excited about. Not only new funding pots, but more of it. Uh, so that's very exciting. And we know that, you know, grants can be somewhat intimidating or overwhelming sometimes, those applications. And some folks kind of think about the effort versus the reward. You know, are you is there going to be a return on investment with the effort going into putting together a grant application? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know, Ryan, you've, you've had a lot of experience with grant writing as well. I feel like, did you ever get a test when you were in school? And it was a test on how well you follow instructions. And like at the top, it would say, do not complete this test. Just put your name on it and turn it in. And then you see how many people don't follow instructions and they just go straight into answering the questions. <laughs> I feel like that's kind of what grants are like. Like this is a test of how well you read and follow instructions. Yeah. And I was the guy who failed every <laughs> single one of those tests. Because I just did test. <laughs> right. I did too. I, I was, never read I the instructions. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you remember to put your name on it now. <laughs> now that you're actually <laughs> doing the grant applications. <laughs> so you'll hear us talk about these grants, but what do we mean by these USDOT competitive grants? So USDOT is the U.S. Department of Transportation. Um, competitive grants are also called discretionary funds. and all of these are under the umbrella of USDOT, which includes the Federal Highway Administration, the Federal Transit Administration, the Federal Railroad Administration, et cetera. Um, aviation, you know, all the, all the modes of transportation all fall with under the USDOT umbrella. And there's a competitive call for projects, um, that comes out for a lot of these discretionary Funds And that's through those notices of funding opportunities. And the difference between these competitive grants or discretionary funds and the formula funding is that states automatically get a certain amount of funds that are not competitive just based off of a formula, which includes population and other things. So and it's from each state's motor fuel taxes collection and all of that. Um, whereas the grants, you have to compete for them. So that other stuff doesn't come into play. So a big part of competing for them is putting together a competitive grant application. And so that's what we want to talk about today. One of the things that we'll mention first is that, you know, we're going to focus most of our grant application writing on the infra and raise programs, just because those are the larger of the existing programs that uh, USDOT uses for our transportation projects that we go after a lot. And those are included for a variety of different transportation improvements across all modes, et cetera. So we're going to focus a lot on those. And first, I'll just give a brief history of them. The Fixing America's Surface Transportation Act, also known as the FAST Act, actually established the National Significant Freight and Highway Projects Program. And that program provides financial assistance or competitive grants known as the Infrastructure for Rebuilding America grants or infra. So that's what we're referring to. And so those are those, you know, big 
freight related projects oftentimes um, that are really going to move the needle. So Infra began back in 2016 and had around $800 million to a billion dollars available in grants across the nation. So that was the federal amount. And then different states would compete for those funds. In 2021, 24 projects out of 157 applications were awarded over 18 states or across 18 states. And those totaled about $905 million uh, being handed out in awards. Now, the RAISE grant program began in 2009. Started out as Tiger, the Transportation Investment Generating Economic Recover Grant. Um, and that was under the Obama administration during the recession. And there were about nine rounds of those up until 2017. And then in 2018, the program was renamed Build, which is better utilizing investments to leverage development. And then it was replaced by RAISE, which is Rebuilding American Infrastructure with Sustainability and Equity. So... Every time you hear Tiger, Build, and Raise, all the same thing. Kirsten, were you trying to get in? Oh, uh, I was just I was just thinking about acronyms. We we talked about acronyms in a previous episode, and I'm just like amazed by the amount of acronyms that come out of these grant programs. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so to date, Tiger Raise has provided about nine point nine billion with a B dollars to over 700 projects in all 50 states, as well as District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, Guam, and uh, the Virgin Islands. For more information on those programs, you can go to transportation.gov and scroll down and select their grant section or link, and this will provide a lot of information about all their different grant programs under the USDOT. Okay, so question number one. Yes. Let's talk about what the major differences are between Infra and RAISE, because yeah. they're both major funding programs. They've got similar purposes, but I think there's a little bit of a difference that, that we want to talk about. Yeah, that's a good question. And one thing I'll say is that the Coalition of America's Gateway and Trade Corridors actually has a great infographic on just this, on what the difference is between Infra and RAISE. And so you can find that at tradecorridors.org. So definitely check that out and that'll be in our show notes. Uh, but the two main differences are that raised funds um, are for capital investments across all modes, um, whereas infra funding are for capital investments for more freight-specific mega projects. There's a minimum dollar amount to uh, for the cost of the project to even make the cut to be able to submit. So those are much larger projects for infra focused more on freight. Also, the raise funding is subject to annual appropriations voted on by the U.S. legislature, whereas infra funding is guaranteed through a set aside in the Highway Trust Fund, which is authorized under the FAST Act and, and now under IIJA. Um, so, you know, the Biden administration just released uh, the new transportation bill that was signed into law. So that's the Infrastructure Investment Job Act, Jobs Act, IIJA, that we mentioned earlier. And that supersedes the FAST Act, which has funds through the end of next month, February 2022. And so it was the FAST Act was extended and now it's about to expire. And then IIJA will will take over. Yeah. So um, I would say, you know, in my experience, um, most people are probably not aware of which projects are funded through which grants unless they see some sort of signage. Like you may be driving and there's a sign that says this project brought to you by uh, the the Tiger Grant. Like I remember seeing a lot of those during the recession. Um, sometimes you'll see projects that have signage to indicate which ones are funded by like a local um, sales tax. So, but generally speaking, I would say, you know, most people probably don't know much about grants, don't know how transportation projects are getting funded, but there's a real advantage to everybody. Um, and what these programs really intend to do is cover those funding gaps and get projects completed that would otherwise be delayed if they had to wait for state or local funding sources to become available. So there's a real benefit uh, to having these competitive um, grant programs and everybody kind of benefits plus the economy 
uh, benefits by p- completing these large infrastructure projects. So just a little bit about why you you do want to pursue grant applications and not be overwhelmed or intimidated by them. What is our role as transportation planners? I think the first thing is we have an opportunity to really help agencies and project sponsors. By by sponsor, I mean somebody who is eligible to go after uh, these funding programs, which might be a state, um, a city, a county, uh, a metropolitan planning organization, Native American tribes, uh, so on and so forth. So we can help those project sponsors determine which projects are most competitive and uh, which funding program that project is best suited for. Um, So in episode six, we talked a lot about these discretionary programs and a lot of the new programs that are coming out. Um, So I think we as a plan as planners can really help kind of determine which projects are eligible and which programs, how much funding you should go for and which ones are the most competitive. Uh, the other thing I think that we as transportation planners can really assist with is determining uh, the appropriate timing in which to apply. Um, so we talked about this in our last episode, which talks about developing grant strategies, but thinking through where the project is in its life cycle from planning to construction and figuring out, okay, is this one going to be competitive from a project readiness? Is it close enough to construction that it's going to compete well against other projects in other states? Um, and then from there, we can kind of develop a timeline in which you should apply for the funding and when the construction of the project must begin, because there are stipulations with these programs that you have a spend down period, you have to spend the money in a certain amount of time. Um, and the project must be completed within a certain amount of time. So I think those are two key roles. Um, but Ryan, I want to ask you, um, what has your experience been like either, you know, completing a grant application on behalf of a project sponsor or actually competing a, completing an application, um, as a project sponsor? Cause I, I know you have experience doing both. Yeah, I've submitted a couple uh, of these applications before, and the first one I ever did was when I worked for the uh, Metropolitan Atlanta Rapid Transit Authority, or MARTA, here in Atlanta. And, you know, that that's a great example of a project because, you know, we talk about being prepared for these things and knowing what you're going to do ahead of time. Um, the fun fact is the Summerhill BRT grant was actually not the proposed project. It was actually the redevelopment of the airport MARTA station. Um, we were about two weeks into writing a grant for that uh, airport station renovation when we found out that it wasn't Buy America. And for those who mm. don't know, Buy America means that all of the materials uh, sourced for a project actually have to be American made. And with this project, we found that the elevators and the escalators were Japanese and German. <laughs> so very quickly, we realized uh, this project was not going to win, and you can't really build a MARTA station without a um, elevator or an escalator yeah. to help out with movement. Minor detail. <laughs> it was a very minor detail. Um, and as you can imagine, once that came out, um, we, we kind of shifted focus and we went with a different direction, and that's how the Summerhill BRT came about. That was a project that had been around uh, a couple of years before and it hadn't really gotten any, you know, leeway. Nobody really had enough public support for it, but we felt that it was a good project and it would compete well. And we went through with it. Um, we got it done very quickly. Uh, I think we did it in less than a week. Um, Can I just you know, say that uh, that's insane, by the way, like a, a, a grant application, given everything that's required, is a solid six week effort at least. So to be Agreed. able to, at yeah, least, at least like, and I only say six weeks because they only usually give you eight, maybe give or take. And so sometimes more, but you really need six to eight weeks. So to do it in one week is like insane. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, I, I fully agree with you. And, uh, <laughs> you know, half that time was spent working on a different grant. So. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Yeah. When you finally shifted, uh, not much of the other grant really helped with uh, coming out with the Summerhill BRT. So 
Um, that was a very all hands on board, you know, give me the information I need now uh, type of grant. So we got that done. Um, and a big thing with this was just we had an excellent external affairs team at MARTA, um, excellent lobbying team at MARTA who really went out and they got the, um, I think they had the president of Georgia State University sign a letter of support and we had yeah. some neighborhood groups. And then, of course, we had Senator John Lewis mm, yeah. um, who signed a letter of support as well. So, you know, that was a big part of it was just, you know, using all the resources available to our agency to um, go after that and secure the funding. Yeah, that is so critically important. You can put the best technical application together. You know, a, a grant application can be the best thing technically. But if you don't have the public and political support and a champion for it, it's not going to it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah, that is true. Um, and that and that's something, you know, you need to take into consideration when you look at these projects is um, how does the public feel about this project? Yeah. How do the elected officials representing your district, um, whether at the local or the state level, you know, are they on board with it as well? Because they're going to need their help in the end of the day. Yeah. And I, and I know in the end, MARTA was successful in getting a grant award for that. How much, what was that for? Was it 12 million or something like that? That's correct. It was about 12 million and the original proposed cost of the project was around 50 million. So that's a pretty good chunk of change. Mm-hmm. That's about 20%. Yep. And as you know, they're actually in 60% design of that project right now. So the hopes is that project will start construction within a, a year or two of now. Yeah. And for, for our listener, BRT, by the way, is bus rapid transit. <laughs> Thank you for yes. <laughs> inputting that because this will this will be the first I believe this will be the first BRT project in Atlanta. Yeah, it's exciting. Mm-hmm. So the second uh, project that um, I worked on was the Beltline Southside Trail Raise Grant. Now, um, this grant had been submitted before unsuccessfully, and um, then we submitted it again in 2020 unsuccessfully. And then we did it again in 2021. And good news is that we found out last fall that this project did win on its third go around um, $16.46 million. So that was a very exciting um, news for us and also for everyone who lives in Atlanta. Um, but I think that's a good tale of, you know, if you're not successful the first time, don't be discouraged. Yeah. Don't think this is the end you can uh, you can apply as many times as you want but the more times you supply uh you have a better chance of winning potentially yeah yeah no that's a good point very good point yeah if you don't what is it if you don't succeed the first time don't give up try again that is correct yeah so kelly do you want to talk about your uh, experience with the state route 400 express lanes um yeah so actually several of us at modern mobility partners worked on that grant application right before we launched modern mobility partners um and that was on behalf of the georgia department of transportation for express lanes up state route 400 um in north atlanta metro and that project actually was awarded the largest USDOT grant in history at $184 million for the grant, not the total, but just the grant. So that was very exciting. And let me tell you, that was a heavy lift. I remember work. I still remember working on that one about four years ago. So, um, but that's a, that's a real exciting project and one that's going to really move the needle in the region. Okay. Awesome. Well, Ryan, Let's uh, let's kick it off and let's start getting into the 10 steps to preparing federal grant competitive grants. Yeah, this is the uh, what everyone's here for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going back to what you said earlier about reading the instructions, I've learned my lesson now in life and <laughs> definitely go back and review and see what what we're supposed to do. So that's that's step one. Um, <laughs> review the notice of funding opportunity, the NOFO, um, read it in detail, and then prepare a summary uh, of the highlights of that document that you can share with others. So you really need to look at all the finite details that exist within this notice of funding. It's pretty long. It's pretty detailed. 
um, you do need to make sure that your project corresponds with everything in there. Um, are you by America? Are you going to be uh, having to do environmental review? And will that environmental review be completed by the time that you need to expend the funds? Um, there are strict deadlines that are in these NOFOs. And so a lot of people, you know, you might have a project that you want to go after, but if that project's not even off the ground yet, you know, you're probably not going to meet the deadlines uh, that the NOFO has lined out. So other things you want to look at when you go through there, um, look at eligibility. Does your project meet the standards um, of what projects are eligible for funding? Uh, look at the funding amounts. Um, is that going to be enough for your project um look at the funding request limits if you're looking for a lot more money than they're offering you might need to go somewhere else um and then of course just look at the expectations for evaluation by the us dot are you going to be able to source the data are you going to be able to get the metrics that they're requiring to um, evaluate the projects on for your project so does your data exist to do this and once you've compiled that summary of the highlights, you can share that with uh, either your, your managers or any clients you might represent who are interested in going after any of the grants. Um, that way, you know, it, it helps. One, it helps you. So you don't have to remember the NOFO in detail. You can just go back and look at the highlight of summaries. But also it just helps any clients you have um, because they're going to be interested in this and they might not have the time to come through it with a fine tooth comb and actually get the details. So they'd love to have this as well. And then, you know, if they could do after a grant, they might come looking at you to help them write it. And, you know, if I could just add real quick, Ryan, one of the things that we've found is when you're working with, let's say we're working at, with one of the state DOTs on a grant application. It's not just one person. They may have a point of contact there or a project manager, but it's not just one person you're going to be working with to get all the information you need, the data and everything to submit the application. And so you're oftentimes having to deal with multiple departments and stuff like that. And so it's not a bad idea to share those highlights with them, too, so they can see what the overall big picture is and what you're trying to accomplish. So... They'll also see the strict deadlines and that there's no wiggle room. <laughs> yeah. That's important to um, to look at as well. And, you know, one key thing you can add there is um, these grants usually come out around the same time every year. So mm -hmm. you can always just keep in mind, come January, um, you've got about a month or two months before that NOFO starts to come out. Yeah. So yeah. you'll know. Um, and that brings us into step two, you know, selecting that project. Um, in the best case scenario, you, uh, the agency or your clients have already discussed what potential projects they would like to consider, um, based on either previous notice of fundings for the grant program. Um, maybe you had a project last year that wasn't successful that you'd like to go with again. Or maybe you've done a planning study and you had a project prioritization and you've already identified the best projects to go for funding and you've looked at, hey, this is the best funding opportunity for these projects. We would like to recommend that you vet these potential projects um, with any decision makers in advance of the notice of funding. Um, application period, as we've talked about before, is usually less than eight weeks. And that's kind of a best case scenario. You know, anywhere from eight weeks to six weeks might be more realistic. And try to get as much legwork as you can ahead of time done. And then once you've finalized that project decision, you're ready to go. You can confirm everything. You can start confirming the data needs, start confirming um, letters of support and getting all those things ahead of time so that you're ready to go once everything's completed. I think this is usually like the Achilles heel for planners that are actually doing the applications is that a lot of times the NOFO comes out and an agency will know that they want to submit a project, but they don't know which one. And out of that eight weeks, there's been times with many agencies and not just with, this is like an industry-wide thing I've heard, you know, a lot of times they don't pick the project until halfway through that cycle. And then you're left with just a few weeks left to do the grant application, which can be very stressful and not provide as much time to put together, you know, a solid competitive application. So, and, yeah. And just to add on to that, Kelly, I mean, 
these programs are so competitive. They get yeah. hundreds of applications. Yeah. Hundreds. Yeah. Um, so the more that we can do up front, the data collection, the having conversations, the gathering support, having conversations with the public, political leaders, so on and so forth, the more you can do that on the front end, the more time you can actually spend on the project narrative, on the data analysis, which we'll get into the benefit cost analysis, and really provides you not only the time to do the technical work, but to review the technical work. And I think that's key. The, The more people you can have look at this before you submit it, the better. But when you are strapped with time, you tend to let those reviews kind of slip. Yeah, good point. That leads us to step three, that's completing the registration through the grant.gov. Um, there are a couple different steps to be authorized to submit an application through grant.gov. So you, for those who don't know and never done it before, you can't just um, complete the application and then go online and do it. Uh, you actually have to take a couple steps ahead of that. Um, so the sponsoring agency, uh, not a consultant, will need to be the one to have a grant.gov account, and they'll need to obtain a DUNS, DUNS, and System Award Management, SAM, number. Um, we would suggest that if you, as an agency or your client, are interested in federal grants, just go ahead and get this process started with. Um, that way, you're not waiting till that final week that it's due and uh, having any trouble getting an account set up and missing that deadline. For more information on this process, you can visit www.sam.gov, and you can also download our sheet sheet, which we'll have on our website at Modern Mobility Partners that you can uh, download after this podcast and get that website as well. Once you have this criteria, you can then create a workspace in the grant.gov website, and this website provides a great resource on how to register, um, it provides training on uh, submitting your grant, and then provide the step to complete the application. Um, and if you need any assistance, once again, go ahead and get this done now so that you will have that time to get any assistance you need from the uh, grant.gov people. Um, because once the notices are out, the response times are going to um, not be great. They're going to have so many questions from so many different people that um, the ability to get to you is going to take a lot longer than if you get it done ahead of when people start asking those questions. Yeah, good point. And Ryan, if I recall, you know, it's up to you to get this established early on. You know, we're not going to, if you have issues at the end, just because you waited too long to set up your your account, it's not going to, you know, you still, you have to be able to have it done before you submit. Otherwise you can't submit. So there's not any wiggle room there, what we're saying. And it can take a few weeks to get it all done. Right. And it's like anything in the industry, you know, if somebody goes after an RFP and they say do it noon on Tuesday and you get it there at one o'clock on Tuesday, you're out of luck. You're out of luck. Yep. So you don't put all your hard work in only to get to the end and uh, have the one thing being registering a grant.gov account being what holds you back. Yeah. Oh, God, that would devastate me. That would be the worst. Yeah, that would devastate me if that happened. (laughs) Yeah, it's um, it's what keeps me up at night when we're doing great applications. Like the last the last night before it's due, I'm like, oh, can we please like I just need to get this submitted by five o'clock. Like, please. I hope the website doesn't crash. Like, (laughs) well, that's the other thing is that we we always try to actually submit one or two days before the deadline in case the website does crash because there's so many people on it the day of. So, yeah. Yes, that is always the goal is to submit what are day yeah. two days before. But uh, Ryan, segue into your next step. <laughs> An ideal situation, right? Yeah. <laughs> and correct. Step four, outlining your schedule. The schedule is pretty tight, as we've said. So if you're managing the process, um, it's good to outline a schedule when you start and try to follow it as close as possible. Um, that way, you know, any delays that come, they won't mess you up too much. Um, and ensure that any of the decision makers and managers involved with this grant are on board with your schedule and are committed to meeting all deadlines. So as I said before, with my experience with Marta, um, I was very lucky that I had an all hands on board situation where, um, 
my superiors acknowledged that this was very important. And if I requested anything, it was to be given to me immediately. There was no, you know, sometimes how it can be you, you send an email and nobody replies to it in 24 hours. And now we're delayed one day. That can have a big effect considering that this is only six to eight weeks to do. Um, you can't really have that delay. So when you make a request, you need to make sure that the managers that oversee the data or have anything you need are going to be understanding that they can't allow um, other projects to take precedence over this. Yeah, for sure. So that leads us into step five, which is drafting those very important letter templates. Um, you are going to need a letter of commitment from the sponsor agency. And this letter commits to the local match of the project. So while this grant is going to have a certain amount of funding, um, you need to be also make sure that you already have a source of money for what the local match um, is going to be for this grant. And again, the earlier, the better to draft your letter of commitment so that it can be reviewed by all necessary departments and receive a signature before the grant deadline. Um, that does need to be signed usually by... Uh, whoever is in charge of the agency or whatever else. So hopefully they're on board already and um, can get that signed ahead of time. Um, and then if you have other funding partners, those partners will also need to provide a letter of commitment for their portion of the local match for this project. And then that brings us to the letters of support. So drafting a letter with standard project information and the highlights of the projects um, can be good for you to do ahead of time so that um, whoever's drafting this letter doesn't have to come up with it on their own. Um, and things like, why is this project important? Um, how does it affect the constituents and the community where the project is, is also good to include in there. And then get those letters of commitment from everyone you can. It's federal level, state level, local level elected officials. Um, you can also look at large corporations or businesses in the area. You can look at neighborhood associations or um, universities, schools. All these groups are capable of providing letters of support. And the more, the better. Um, it just helps to let the USDOT grant officials know that it looks like people support this project. Uh, if you come in with no letter of support, it might start to look a little bit weird and people question <laughs> who's going with this project. Yeah. And I would just add, I'd say typically I usually see five or more letters of support appended to one grant application. So, you know, you want to get as many as you can and there's usually no limit to those. The other thing I'd say is I know that sometimes before those letters can be um, officially sent to those that are um, going to be signing them, you may have to fill out like a dollar amount or something that may not be known until later. But that's okay because the first thing you do is make sure, you know, your powers that be have approved the letter to go out, but the language that's in there. But two, that you guys as a team have already come up with the list of people to reach out to for these letters of support and already giving them a heads up that the request is going to be coming and that you're going to need it signed ASAP when it comes in. Because a lot of times you may have a contact at an agency that you want to get a letter of support from, but they may not be the person that's actually going to sign it. They may not be the executive director or the commissioner or something like that. So they have to move it up the food chain. And so they need to know, hey, look, we're going to be coming to you requesting a letter of support. Can you go ahead and give a heads up to the person that's signing that this is forthcoming. The other thing I'd add real quick is by reaching out to elected officials, that plants the seed as well for them to go ahead and start politically championing projects as well. So that helps also. Yeah. And, you know, Ryan mentioned it earlier uh, when he was working on the application for MARTA, their external affairs team. Um, any opportunity that you have to work with an external affairs or government relations. So anytime you have an opportunity to work with an external affairs or government relations team, uh, that's probably your best bet because they're the ones that have those existing relationships with elected officials, yeah. community leaders, business leaders, state leaders. So, you, you know, try to connect with them and leverage their relationships. The other thing yeah. that I would also recommend during this step 
is putting together a list of any and all organizations, agencies, elected officials um, that you want to try to get a letter from and send that to your external affairs or government relations and see which ones they they know the best and then come up with a strategy for how you're going to outreach to those others. Yeah, and that's a great point. And one last thing I'll add so that you don't step on any toes. Definitely ask your external affairs or government relations person, you know, who should be reaching out to them. Usually they're going to be the ones that want to reach out to them. Um, and that's really important. The last thing you want to do is circumvent and then the elected official, have, you know, doesn't know who you are, doesn't know what this project is about then gets irritated because they're being contacted for something they have no idea what it's about. So use those relationships with your government relations, external affairs folks, if you have access to a department like that. Yeah, those are all great points to keep mm-hmm. in mind. So then we get into step six, which is identify and collect all the data you may need. So if you look at the USDOT guidelines, they actually have a benefit cost analysis guidance. And in there, they already have a number of um, inputs uh, and costs that you can take into account. Uh, some of these are quantitative and some of these are qualitative criterias. Um, and you can use a mix of both, really, in your application. For getting this data, the project manager is probably going to be the best source of information since the data may come from different agency departments. Um, so as said before, you know, Typically, we this person should already have approval from everybody to get that data as fast as possible once they make that request. Um, and one of the best things to do uh, early on in the process is compile a data matrix of the information needed and the responsible party for collecting. This helps with distribution to ensure that we know who the data is coming from. Have we received the data yet? When are we expected to receive the data? Um, and if we aren't going to get the data, uh, is there anything else we can do to substitute that data for something else that could also get us the information we need? Once we have that data, it's best to keep it in one location, whether that's a benefit cost analysis uh, BCA folder or somewhere else where it's readily available. Um, we prefer a sh- shared folder with that between the agencies and anyone else working on it so everybody can just drop it in when they get it. And then once you have it, you can hold a brainstorming session with everyone involved in the application to determine the major theme to include for each of these criteria. So you may also need to collect external data about the project locations, demographics, including um, environmental justice screenings, which can mean minority, low income, aging, disability, or transit-dependent populations. So something to keep in mind here. They've added sustainability requirements and equity requirements as part of the criteria for evaluating these projects. So you do need to show in these projects that you're, you know, not impacting any environmental justice groups and you're also not impacting any uh, environmental issues or sustainability issues that might exist where your project is located. Yeah. Just to add to that, Ryan. um, So. You don't necessarily have to meet every single criteria that's in the notice of funding. However, the more criteria you can meet, the more competitive you are. So when it comes to equity and sustainability, um, they're really looking to fund projects in areas or communities that have historically been um, underinvested, whether they be low income or minority or, you know, whatever. So um it's it's not that just you aren't impacting those those communities, but you're actually providing added benefit. Yeah, that's a good point. And and the other thing I would add a little tip is depending on how far along the project is during as part of project development before it gets to construction, usually the more technical analysis that's been completed. And so usually the project manager on the agency side for the, or the project sponsor side for the project has access to all the previous studies and documents that have been prepared for this project. And if, if in an ideal situation, in many cases, it's all in a database with the project sponsor. So they have a database for the project especially like DOTs, they'll have all the relevant information that's been done in the past for that project. And a lot of times you can comb through those and pull out, 
you know, technical analyses that was done for it and just repackage it for the grant application. And the more you can cite and reference other plans and studies that have been done for the project, the better, because it, it just gives it a more longstanding history and credibility and support. So just wanted to add that. Yeah, thanks for including that. So all this exciting stuff leads us to step seven, which is determining the funding request amount. And this can be a pretty iterative process. There's no correct number, but there are usually funding and match requirements in the notice. So as we said before, you really got to read it. You actually got to understand um, what percentage of the project you can request up to, what the limit on that request is, and also what is your requirement for the local match amount. So create a few funding scenarios to share with the sponsor agency and decision makers. Walk through these scenarios with them to ensure everyone understands the cost estimates, what the funding request and implications for each scenario are. And then once everyone's gotten together and kind of going through each scenario, you can finally uh, come up with your final funding request and confirm it and confirm that local match amount early to prepare for what would be your next step, which would be the BCA completion. So just a note on these scenarios. Um, <laughs> don't be alarmed. You may put together three or four scenarios. You will likely choose scenario five, six or seven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just a lot of back and forth because as Ryan said, there's there's no hard and fast rule for how much you should request. Um, you do want to be competitive. Like if they say the the federal match is up to 80%, you're probably not going to be as competitive if you're asking for that 80% because there's going to be other projects that are only asking for 20%. Yeah. So, you know, it's those kind of things that you have to keep in mind when you're coming up with these scenarios and figuring out what exactly are you going to request. And part of it is just showing that you've got skin in the game. Um, yeah. That's a big part of it. And the the more higher percentage you can show that is non-federal funds, it's the more competitive it makes you. For sure. Yeah. And I'll say for, you know, projects like the Summerhill BRT, MARTA had recently passed a sales tax. Um, it's called the More MARTA Program. So they had some money that they could put up. But also the city of Atlanta had T-SPLAS money from their sales tax that they were putting in um, from the Renew Atlanta Program. So it doesn't even have to be one source of funding for that local match. Right. In that case, they had two sources of funding. Um, and that helped them, A, raise more percentage for the local match that, that they could reduce their requests for the federal match. Yeah. Yeah. And it showed partnership, which is something else that most of these uh, notices talk about is have the sponsor talk about the partnerships that they have with this. So the more local right. commitment from a funding perspective you have, the more competitive it's going to be. And finally, it's showing a steady revenue stream when you've got, you know, sales tax options and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, all good points. Okay. So as we said, this leads you into step eight, and that is completing the benefit cost analysis or the BCA. And this step is probably the most intimidating part of an infra or raise grant. Um, and this is the quantitative calculation to determine if the benefits of the project outweigh the cost. Now, not all competitive grants require a BCA, but infra and raise do. USDOT provides guidance and resources on how to build a BCA spreadsheet tool and measures and standards that they expect to follow. Follow these to a T and you'll be in pretty good shape. Now, they're not going to provide you with a spreadsheet and they're not going to provide you with really calculations in that part. You're going to have to build that spreadsheet yourself and you're going to have to start doing some calculations on your own. But they do give you a lot of the resources in the USDOT BCA guidance, which you can find on the USDOT website and will also include in the downloadable for this podcast which gives a good overview. There's a couple of tables in the appendices there that they give you the cost um, for travel times and assumptions that you can make. And not even all of these are required to be followed. So for the Southside uh, Beltline Trail that we did with the Atlanta Beltline, we actually used uh, more local numbers to replace the USDOT numbers. A lot of those numbers are more of a national average 
But if you can utilize any recent city surveys or U.S. census data that's specific to where the project is, either at the block group level or, or regional level or city level, you can substitute that data in and kind of make a note of it for the DOT reviewers. So going back to that spreadsheet, we also recommend including a methodology technical memorandum that explains the different benefit and cost measures, the sources of information and equations. So in this memo, you're kind of give a, give out what the results are, um, tell them what the inputs were, and then just explain how you came up with everything. And you want to make this as easy to follow as possible because this is very important. USDOT is going to recreate your BCA and they're going to compare their results to yours. So any project that has a BCA of 1.0 or above is considered something that has more benefit than cost. And, you know, you, your project might be 1.5 or 2. And those are pretty good numbers. But if you submit it to USDOT and they come back and say, actually, our number is less than 1, there's not much you can do to challenge that. Um, that's their review. So you want to make sure it's as accurate as possible and whatever they're doing behind the scenes that you're never going to see, um, it's going to be as accurate to what you're going to get. That that's a really really important point um, that I can't emphasize enough. They have to be able to recreate your same results, and they also have to agree with the assumptions you used to create those results. Um, and so, documenting your assumptions and backing up why you used any different assumptions with credible sources is really important. Um, the one thing might be good. Ryan, can you explain to our listeners what types of benefits might be included in the benefits, which is the numerator, and what types of costs may be included in the cost, which is the denominator? So the total benefits divided by the total cost is how you get that ratio. But, you know, uh, cost of human life, you know, if you save money, um, due to reduce, or excuse me, if you save lives due to reduced crashes, that's actually quantified um, as part of the benefits, you know, as one example. That's that's kind of what I'm looking for. Yeah. So a couple of those things and some of the key benefits would be the value of travel time savings or the how much are you reducing congestion, um, operating cost savings, uh, savings and operational cost for the users of the roadways. There's the safety benefits for reducing crashes. There's the emissions reduction benefits for reducing emissions due to idling. And then, you know, those, those are the key USDOT benefits that I would say are really looked at. Um, and then the cost, you know, you have three prime costs. You have capital expenditures, um, what capital is needed, whether it's buying the buses or it's paying for the roadway itself or the any of that information and then what are the operating and maintenance expenditures the O&M so how much is it going to cost to operate this uh, year over year and a good resource for that cost really comes internally from the agency itself so if it's a DOT they typically know what the O&M rate is for mile of roadway or for transit agency they typically already know what the O&M is for a transit route and then finally, the residual value and the remaining service of life. So those are the three primary costs, and that's the denominator. Um, and so when you compare those benefits to the cost, you'll get your BCA. And something I want to highlight really quickly here is these are what the USDOT calls out. But as mentioned before, you can substitute a couple things in there as long as you make a good case why they should be included. So on the south side belt line, you know, that's a multi-use trail project. So when you look at these benefits, travel time savings doesn't really apply that much. Operating cost savings doesn't apply that much. Emissions reduction benefits, it can, but those are really roadway projects. Those are yeah, things that yeah. they're not really transit friendly. They're not too multi-use trail friendly like the Beltline project was. So we came up with some other benefits. We looked at some uh, 
transportation research board that had been done and it was on um value of health so we were looking at you know what is the health value to people who use multi-use trails for recreation whether they're biking whether they're walking and how does that impact this and we also looked at property values how does the property values enhanced through this project's inclusion so things like that can really start to help some of these projects aren't roadway specific be more competitive because if you only use the key usdot guidelines for those um, you'd have a really hard time as a non-roadway project winning anything yeah that's that's a real important point so don't get discouraged if you're trying to submit for, say, a bike ped project and you see what's including the benefits and you think there's no way my project will be competitive, you know, we won the the Southside Trail Project Award for Atlanta Beltline working, supporting them on that. Uh, we did the benefit cost analysis and they did the narrative of the application. And um, but we had to get creative, you know, and like you said, you found that TRB research, which is great. So. Yeah, and we, we found some really, really neat things. Um, the Atlanta Beltline, they were planting a lot of trees around. So we actually did um, emissions reductions through carbon capture of the trees. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and we had to, like, talk to some arborists to figure out, you know, at what rate do the trees go and at what maturity do the trees actually start reducing carbon and factoring that in wow um, we looked at stormwater retention so a lot of the Atlanta Beltline um, they're designing it so that it maintains the water on the trail it's not washing into the sewer system mm -hmm. so we're saving the city a certain amount of money from them not having to build additional infrastructure for sewer and runoff so you can get really creative with these things but in these cases we did have um calculations for that already yeah. so another key thing is if, if you want to come up with these you do need to make sure you have that data available yeah yeah great yeah so we're almost done we got two more steps step nine is drafting the project narrative so the notice the nofo will usually include a recommended outline for the project narrative and you need to follow this as closely as possible so if they say that Executive summary goes first. Executive summary goes first. Don't leave out anything that they require. Make sure it's all there. You know, maybe make a checklist with the NOFO requirements. And as you go through the document and review it, make sure you check everything off and have it. Be as direct and concise in your points as possible. And be sure to adequately back up your points with quantitative data from the BCA as much as possible. Um, do not state something like, my project will increase access to transit and move on. Illustrate how your project is increasing the access to transit. Are you including new stops? Are you adding sidewalk connections? Is there an increase in the number of people who are expected to use transit because you're increasing the access to transit? Include as much data as possible. There is a page limit on these. Inferent rays are typically 25 pages. And they will usually set font and margin standards, so you need to follow that as well. While you do not have to include graphics, mapped photos, um, or any other illustrative advice in your narrative, it can help to clearly demonstrate the project's location, surrounding community information, or usership of that project. And finally, make sure you document all your sources. It does not usually require a full citation, but at a minimum, include a footnote that goes to the website or anything that you are linking. And to make a note of that, you need to do the same thing in your BCA spreadsheet and your BCA technical memorandum. You do need to source everything so that when USDOT goes back and reviews this stuff, they don't have to go searching for it. They can just click on the link. And it should be right there for them. And I'll note that uh, your resource pages, your endnotes, your references uh, do not count towards your page limit. So, Oh, that's a good tip. Mm -hmm. So I, I recommend using endnotes instead of footnotes uh, because then your endnotes will not count towards that 25 pages. Oh, look at that. Isn't that clever? <laughs> <laughs> I've given away trade know. secrets over here. Yes, yes. 
I was about to say, I don't remember you sharing this with me on the Atlanta Beltline. <laughs> it's it's more for the project narrative. The yeah, uh, yeah. the ah. BCA uh, that that memo um, doesn't have any page limit requirements, so it's it's not as uh, critical for that one. So Kirsten's excused. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, we get to the end. Step ten: compile everything together and submit. As with all your material, be sure to include time to review. Include time for revisions, both internally and externally. You do know this is going to have to go through quite a few people, probably at different agencies who are going to sign off on this. So make sure everyone has time to get it and make sure you stick to that schedule. Once you submit it to them, let them know, hey, I need this back in three days and let them know why you need it back in three days. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's not just some arbitrary Uh, deadline. Yeah. If I don't get it back in three days, we're moving on without you. So speak now or forever hold your peace. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then, of course, you will submit these materials on grant.gov as outlined in step three. So you should already be registered if you followed our 10 steps. And then there are also forms that go along with the form 424 and 424-C that need to be completed and submitted with your application. Um, The workspace will tell you where to upload your narrative. Uh, the BCA methodology, tech memos, letters of commitment, and letters of support will all be attachment to that narrative. Um, and use your best judgment on the order. What do you think is most important? What do you think they're going to be looking for the most? And then confirm you do not have any errors on your submittals. Um, make sure you can open all your documents once you've uploaded them. So the you know, last thing you want is USDOT to come back and say, hey, we clicked on the link and there's nothing there. Uh, yeah. So another trade secret. Um, if you have a letter of support or a letter of commitment that has an e-signature, you are going to have to upload that separately from any other letters. Because as soon as you merge a document that has an e-signature with any other documents in a PDF, um, it loses that signature. What? So, <laughs> don't merge e-signature documents with anything else. Just upload them as separate attachments. Okay, good to know. All right. How did you find this out? <laughs> the, the hard, hard way. way? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I so I had I had the e signature as a separate file and it was fine. But I had merged it with all of our other letters. And when I was going through reviewing all of my letters, mm-hmm. um, I saw that uh signatures were missing. And I had a little panic attack because I was going to say after she recovered from the heart attack. Yeah, I think this was about two hours before the deadline. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, up front, e-signatures, leave those files alone. Yeah. Yeah. One other tip I'll say is that a lot of times, you know, Ryan, you had mentioned forms 424 and 424C. A lot of times um, folks kind of forget about those and they become an afterthought. And then it's the day of to submit the grant application. And we're like, oh, we got these forms. So make sure those stay on the radar screen early on. They're not too complicated. They're not. They're they're not. But they just they need to be filled out. And that's the last thing you want to be worried about last minute. And you, you do have to put dollar amounts in there and stuff. Yes. So you want to make sure it matches everything. The other thing is, is if you fill them out early and then you go and change your dollar amounts in the narrative, you need to make sure you go back and reflect those changes in the forms as well. So it yes. works both ways, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, I typically try to fill out as much of the forms as I can uh, as soon as we identify the project and I've collected data. But you're absolutely right. Um, yeah. You can't finish filling them out until you decide on how much funding you're requesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And you do need to double check those numbers against your BCA, your project narrative, and uh, also your your letters of commitment to make sure your local match amounts match what's in your form. Yep. So once you've done all this, you can finally submit the application by the deadline and cross your fingers. You'll have a couple months. I think it's usually about six months before you start hearing back at the earliest. Yeah, I feel like at least that. Yeah. So. So what happens once you've submitted it into the vortex, right? Like, and then you, like, what happens when are, when are the project sponsors going to hear anything? Do sometimes, does sometimes the USD come back and ask for more information before they make a decision? 
Like, what happens? You want me to take that ride? I have never. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was I was just thinking in my head. Um, I know for the last year's grant, we submitted that, believe it was March. And I think we heard back in September, October that we had won. Okay. Um, so I think that's a total time of, I'd say, seven, yeah. seven to eight months in that period. Yeah. Um, but I've never heard any questions back from USDOT. I'm going to err on the side that they probably will not ask you any questions. They will. Yeah, they, they will. They will. Um, yeah. So, for, first and foremost, you should always feel good about the project that you submitted in your application because even putting one of these together is is a huge accomplishment. Um, yeah. So, you know, I would advise you to be cautiously optimistic um, USDOT makes it very clear in every webinar they do and anytime they speak to anybody about funding that they cannot fund every project. They can't even yeah, fund all just... the great projects. So yeah. I think it was in their 2021 Infra webinar that they had a statistic up there that they couldn't fund in everything and that typically they fund about 20% of the applications and 80% okay. of the applicants are going to be disappointed. Yeah. So (laughs) it's tough. It's tough. Yeah. Um, And you may be contacted for additional information. Um, If you do receive a request, you typically do not have much time to respond. So as soon as the project sponsor receives this, whoever the contact person is for the grants.gov is going to get the request. Yeah. Um, make this a priority and respond in a timely manner. So yeah. they may ask for, hey, I need some additional information about your BCA. Can you provide a little bit more documentation on this? Or, um, hey, we didn't, we, we see that you say that your spin down period is going to be X amount of months, but can you provide some documentation that backs that up? So, that's usually if you get a request like that, that means you've made it through the at least one or two rounds of review and it's been yeah. recommended up and they want that additional information before they give it to the U.S. DOT secretary, who is the final decision maker. Yeah. And that adds, you know, another layer. The other thing is if you don't get selected, they will actually do debriefings with you. Um, Ryan, yep. do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, so on the Southside Beltline, that was the second time that we had helped them. They had let a Beltline submit that grant. It had been submitted before we uh, became consultant to them. But the first time we submitted it, we did. We were not successful, and there was a debriefing, and there really wasn't anything bad. It was. It was kind of one of those moments where they said, you know. We were able to replicate your BCA. Um, we're in concurrence with your numbers. Uh, the narrative was good. This was good. That was good. Everything was good. And you just felt really depleted because then why didn't we win? Yeah. <laughs> well, as Kirsten said, like, you, can't e- you can't even fund all the great projects, right? Yeah. So, but then that just goes to show that persistence is key. Submitted it again, and it was a great project before, but there were even Better, greater, better. And that's not right. <laughs> better, greater my, projects. My mother would kill me right now if she heard me say that. Yeah. Um, but there are even better projects out there, higher performing. And so, but then you submit again. And yeah, I've heard of multiple occasions where projects have been submitted two or even three times and then finally get the award, right? The nice thing is, is that once you've already done the initial grant application, if there's not too many changes in the notice of funding opportunity between the last time and this time, you don't, you're not reinventing the wheel. But it's also not as easy. People sometimes think, oh, well, you just dust off the application, make a few updates here and then we're done. It's not that easy, right? But it's a lot easier than starting from scratch. So, yeah. yeah. And I think other things that I think about when you look at these, it's just, what is the focus of the current administration? So are they looking to fund uh, more urban projects or more rural projects? Are they looking to fund more roadway projects or more transit projects? So sometimes it could just be that your project doesn't align with what 
the current uh, federal administration yeah. wants to be looking at. So yeah. that can always be an issue as well. For, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, Ryan, one last question, and I think we'll wrap up. What would you say is really the biggest challenge um, with these grant applications when you're preparing one? Yeah, it's definitely maintaining that schedule. Um, As we said so many times, it's tight. And even if the, you know, NOFO comes out today, you know, especially if you're an agency and you plan on having a consultant help with you, you you still have to have time to write that contract and get them a notice to proceed and get all that done. And then who knows, maybe a week has already gone by or two weeks and now you've only got six weeks. Um, Yeah. And there's also just so many layers of getting that data, um, getting the letters of support, getting everyone on board. It, it really is an all hands on board type of it situation. Is. It is. It takes a village to get these things done. <laughs> it takes There's a village. There's no doubt. Um, well, that's fantastic. So, Ryan, you brought us so much expertise and lessons learned, and we really appreciate you being on our uh, little podcast today. Um, so thank you for tuning in, everybody. Uh, or may, I don't know. I say everybody like we have our one thousands. listener. Yeah. Like we have thousands of listeners. However, I will say this. I checked our podcast analytics the other day. And now this is just for season one, which was three episodes. Now see three episodes plus the trailer. Season two that we're recording now is actually going to be 12 episodes released every week. And, but for season one, we actually had 500, over 500 downloads. So that's not too bad for first season. We have more than one listener. I was going to say, it seems like a lot of downloads for one person. I know. I know. Oh, and we've got reach. It's not just in the United States. There's people, we had a couple of listeners from um, France and Norway and India, although I'm convinced India is size mom. (laughs) <laughs> which so Cy works for us and I'm pretty sure it's probably his mom. We'll have to find out about that. <laughs> but anyway, um, so again, thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, we really hope you found this information useful. It's very timely because we are expecting the no- uh, the notice of funding opportunity for the raise grants to come out literally in like three days. Um, we're at the end of January 2022 right now. It could have even come out while we were recording this podcast. Who knows? So a lot of you will be gearing up on your grant applications over here in the next few weeks. So hopefully you find this useful. Um, if you are an American Institute of Certified Planner, an AICP, and you are looking for continuing education credits or CM, continuing maintenance credits, um, we are an AICP provider and these podcasts are eligible for credits. So this podcast will probably get you about 1.25 credit hours. And you can find and log the credits at planning.org, which is the American Planning Association, and just do a search for Modern Mobility Partners, and that'll show all of our episodes, and you can log from there. So you can also download a free cheat sheet at our um, website, modernmobilitypartners.com, for this episode. Uh, and don't forget to subscribe and even better review our podcast. You can find us on any of your podcast listening apps. And from that, we are over and out. Bye. Bye. Bye guys. Thank you for tuning in to Modern Mobility. If you work for an organization that has implemented innovative and practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges and are interested in being on our podcast, email us at podcast at modernmobilitypartners.com. Want to learn more about our consulting services? Check us out at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast.